Welcome. This is the Young Gunners Podcast from the Texas Young Lawyers Association. We cut through the noise and discuss practical tips and challenges facing new attorneys in Texas and the United States. In this episode, I'm your host, Megan Harding. I'm a senior attorney with the Texas Civil Rights Project. I am recording from Austin, Texas, and I have with me Efren Olivares. He is an attorney and the director of the Racial and Economic Justice Program for the Texas Civil Rights Project. And we will be talking about the family separation crisis at the border that began this summer and continues today. So thanks for being here, Efren. My pleasure. Thank you for having me. So I just want to jump right in and see if you can give us a little bit of information about TCRP and what we do here at the Texas Civil Rights Project. Sure. TCRP started in South Texas, actually, in the late 1970s when Jim Harrington went down there and started representing farm workers in their struggles back then to for things that we take for granted today, such as uh, water break, bathrooms out in the fields, uh, restriction on hours, and eliminating what's called a shorthand held hoe so that people would not have to be bent over all day. Those kinds of struggles in the late 70s and the 80s were the birth, really, of TCRP, and then it was founded as the Texas Civil Rights Project in 1990. So we've been around for now 28 years as TCRP, And today, our work is focused on three program areas. One is voting rights, where we seek to protect the right to the vote, both on the front end when it comes to registering to vote and getting uh, people to do so, and also on the back end on on election day and during early voting to making sure that people get to cast a ballot that counts. Secondly, we have the the criminal justice program. And there we focus on the rights of inmates, challenging mass incarceration, solitary confinement, police brutality, and many of the other injustices in our criminal justice, or as we call it at TCRP, the criminal injustice system. Um, (laughs) And in the racial and economic justice program, which I have the privilege of directing, we defend people from discrimination on the basis of race, ethnicity, nationality, gender, sexual orientation, your usual immutable characteristics. And most recently, we have been focusing on discrimination on the basis of immigration status. That's a tricky one because, for two reasons at least, because immigration status is not immutable. You can change it. You can gain immigration status. You can lose it. It can change throughout your life. And secondly, some discrimination on the basis of immigration status is legal. For example, in Texas, if you are undocumented, you cannot get a driver's license. And that has been upheld by the courts. Whereas in places like New Mexico, you can get a driver's license. So not all discrimination on the basis of immigration status is illegal, but a lot of it is. And certainly, you know, having your kid taken away from you because of your immigration status is illegal. Yeah, I think that that's a nice segue. So I think the United States, all of us, we were shocked this summer at what was taking place in the border and families being separated. So, I mean, I know you were on the front lines every day. So can you just take us back, talk to us a little bit about how you came to get involved and kind of what those initial days, the first days were like for you? Back in May, when we started hearing that the zero tolerance policy was implemented in the first week of May, and in our South Texas office, it was our paralegal, a community outreach person, part-time, 
and myself. We were the only three people in the office. And we started hearing these rumors that as a result of zero tolerance, people who crossed the border illegally were being charged with illegal entry. And anybody traveling with their child was having their child taken away by, by Border Patrol agents. We were hearing rumors about this, but we were not sure. Uh, we are one of the two organizations that do civil rights work that has lawyers in South Texas in the Rio Grande Valley. So in late May, on May 23rd, I got a phone call from one of the federal public defenders in McAllen. She called me to tell me that she was seeing in the clients she was representing in court for legal entry that the ones who were parents who had been traveling with children had had their children taken from them. And she was essentially asking me if there was something we could do about it. And what she described was frankly hard to believe. Because when people, so everyone who's charged with illegal entry, if it's a first time crosser, they plead guilty and they are sentenced to time served. For the non-criminal lawyers listening, time served means that if you were arrested two days ago, you get sentenced to two days and then you have completed your sentence. So they would be sentenced to time served and turn over to ICE. And when they are sentenced, the judge gives them an opportunity to say a few words if they so choose. And the parents who would ask about their children. You know, I was traveling with my seven-year-old daughter and she was taken from me two days ago when I was arrested and I haven't seen her since. When am I going to see her again? And the judge's response was, this is not the right forum for that. Miss Public Defender, do you know where the daughter is? Like, no, Your Honor, I don't know. Miss Prosecutor, where's the daughter? We don't know, Your Honor, Border Patrol took them. They, they brought in Border Patrol lawyers to the court and they say, well, the Office of Refugee Resettlement took the children. We don't know where they are. The Office of Refugee Resettlement is part of the Department of Health and Human Services and they are typically tasked with taking custody of unaccompanied minors. Unaccompanied minors are children under 18, obviously, who cross into the U.S. by themselves with no adult. And they are taken by ORR and there's a process that they go through to try to find them someone to receive them in the U.S. and, you know, follow through their immigration case. But these children were not unaccompanied. They had been traveling with their parents, but because the government separated them, they became unaccompanied and that's why ORR took them. But the bottom line for these parents in court, no one had answers for them and no one knew where the children were and the parents didn't know when they might see them again. So I, I was distraught but by what this public defender was telling me. And, you know, before I came to TCRP about five years ago, I worked for a year in D.C. at the Inter-American Commission on Human Rights, which is part of the OAS, the Organization of American States. You can think of that as a regional UN for the Americas. But it's essentially a human rights body that hears and decides complaints related to human rights violations. So I was familiar with that forum and with the process there, and they have um, a procedure to issue emergency measures when there's an imminent risk of irreparable harm to life or personal integrity. They can request a government to take certain steps to address that urgent risk. So I was familiar with that. So that's what I, I told the public defenders. Like, well, we could go to the Inter-American Commission. And I asked her if she could write an affidavit for us summarizing what she had told me what I just described. She called me back 10 minutes later saying, you know, I can't do that because if I write an affidavit, I become a witness and I'm the lawyer for these clients, so I can't do that. But you can come and talk to them. She said, the hearing starts at 9. If you can be here at 7.30 before the hearing, you can talk to them. I'll be there tomorrow morning. 
So with our paralegal, we got together an intake form that afternoon trying to, you know, what do we need? Name, date of birth, country of origin, and some narrative about what happened. So sure enough, the next day, our paralegal Georgina and I went to court at 7.30 in the morning. And yeah, it was as she had described it. And if you can picture a courtroom, anybody who's been in a courtroom, you know, you have all the benches for the public. So those benches were packed with over 100 people in handcuffs, in shackles. And it's what they call the five-point handcuffs. So it's the two handcuffs, the shackles, and then their handcuffs are chained to a chain around their waist, which is what they use for the more dangerous defendants. But they were using it for all these men and women who were coming to court charged with illegal entry. It's a misdemeanor, by the way. And we asked how many of you were traveling with children and were separated from them. And five people stood up and we you know, took them to the side and started interviewing them in the corner of the courtroom, getting again their name, their date of birth, and their children's information. And what happened? And, and most of them had been separated the day they arrived. One of them had been separated that morning, right before coming to court. And we started going day after day. Early on, we realized that we were the only ones capturing this information name, date of birth, and especially the children's information. And with that info, we could then try to find them uh, on online for the adults and by phone with the Office of Refugee Resettlement for the children. And we realized that we were the only ones capturing this information other than the government. So, and we were only covering one city, McAllen. So in all the other cities, we sort of had to go with what the government says, how many people were separated, how many children were taken from their parents. In McAllen, we can verify, starting May 24th, the first day we went. But everywhere else, we have to take the government's word for it. And what's really concerning is that some of the families we spoke to were not on the government's lists of separated families. So had we not captured that information on the government's records, they show up as an unaccompanied minor and an adult who was traveling and are apprehended at the border. They are not accounted for as a separated family. We know that ours were because we interviewed them. We have their signed forms. But I, you know, I hope and I pray to God that no one else was in that situation in all the other cities across the border. Dozens of mm -hmm. cities where they have courthouses along the U.S.-Mexico border. Yeah. Um, it seems like heavy and as heavy as kind of maybe it felt for all of us um, this summer. So... As you're going day to day and you're listening to these stories and you're trying to um, do the the hard labor of representing um, these families, how do you you know maintain I guess hope as the information wheel turns and um, you can tell that the government's information is is not accurate and you're kind of up against struggles of finding children and just all of the bureaucracy that was created. Um, how do you keep going? The very first day I went and when I saw it with my own eyes, I don't know if it was a result of having 10 years of experience or some instinct, probably a combination of both. But I remember thinking that very first day, there's no way this is going to be going for a long time. I just couldn't believe it that in 2018, the United States government mm. could take children away from their parents and not be accountable to anybody about where their children were where they were, what conditions they were being held in, or when they were going to go back to their parents. You know, I've heard many times that, well, when you commit a crime, your children don't come to you to jail. 
The difference is, though, that when you do time for a crime you committed, when you complete that sentence, your children are usually uh, at home waiting for you. For these parents, like I said, they got sentenced to time served, and then when they completed that sentence, their children were not there for them. They had been taken away and flown across the country. In interviewing these parents, it, it, at first, I, I, I think we felt almost a duty to do something about it. Like I, uh, at first, we felt a duty to do something about it. It was happening in our hometown. We are at a civil rights organization. There was something we could do about it. We weren't sure how it was going to turn out, but there was something we could do about it, so we did it. Let's do something. We're here. It's it's, mm. um, and the first few weeks, as this issue started to get more and more national attention, it became I don't know a combination of caffeine and adrenaline. Those weeks that the flurry of activity <laughs> was really insane, mm-hmm. and then it became press interviews and all of that. But talking to the parents was the hardest work I've ever done as a lawyer. Because one of the questions we would ask, you know, as we kept doing it, we edited our intake form to, as we realized what information was more important. And one of the things we would ask is, did the agents who took your child tell you when you're going to see them again? And they would all say, yeah, this afternoon. They told me that my child couldn't come to court with me. But that when I go back to the detention facility, my child's going to be there. And I would say, you know, I hope that's true. But there's a chance. And, and I knew that it was fairly certain, but I would kind of downplay it. It's like, you know, there's a chance that your child might not be there. There's a chance that he was taken to a shelter and he's now with, with other children there. And they were not too surprised by that. It's like, okay, well, if I'm not going to see him today, then when? Mm-hmm. And that was a tough question to answer. Mm-hmm. Because we didn't know when. Keep in mind, this is before the executive order is issued on June 20th, before the injunction was granted in the class action in California on June 26th. So early June, mid-June, we really had no idea how long this was going to be going on for and when these children were going to be back with their parents. So we had to tell them, you know, we're doing everything we can to make sure that you see your son, your daughter as soon as possible. But I don't want to lie to you. It's likely going to be a few days, maybe a few weeks maybe several weeks and that's when they would break down crying we had to stop the interviews many times we i mean one mother fainted during the interview and like i was saying this is in the crowded courthouse with the public defenders talking to their clients also one-on-one we're here in a corner and there's a lot of activity you have the marshal officers there the border patrol agents interpreters it was just a chaotic scene but it was critical that we captured that information, name, their birth, country of origin, to be able to document the separation and track them down, down the road. Frankly, and this makes me sad, but it became easier as we did it over and over again. It was not that hard for me to break it to a mother that I had no idea when she was going to see her daughter again. We became desensitized. And we were utterly unprepared for that kind of exposure. Our paralegal, we had two law students helping us, our outreach coordinator, myself, other lawyers from other offices that came in the middle of the crisis to help. We had no preparation for secondary trauma, for vicarious trauma, compassion fatigue, 
We experienced all of those things this summer. And we're now seeing counselors and trying to address it very directly and very explicitly. But it was something that we were not prepared for. But like I said at the beginning, we just did it because we had to do it. Because if, if we didn't do it, no one else was going to do something about it. So I'm proud of that fact that uh, personally and institutionally as a lawyer at TCRP that we were able to react quickly. And I'm convinced that our ability to share those stories because we were interview the parents, get their consent or not. But if we got their consent to share their story, we would share it anonymously with the press and do public advocacy around their situation. And I'm convinced that that is what turned the public opinion against this cruel policy of separating children from their parents. Yeah, and I think, you know, a lot of your job is is the law and to think about the legalities of, um, you know, any given thing that the government is doing, but there's also a lot of, like, legal barriers, right? And in this um, area of law in particular, it's kind of tricky how you approach things. Um, so... Talk to us just about the legal side of what you were facing and why you decided to file with the commission versus some other legal strategy. When we first saw what was going on, it was, you know, what the government is doing is technically lawful under criminal law. They can establish a zero tolerance policy for any crime. It's a, the prerogative of the executive and they can establish it and they are going to prosecute everyone for that crime, even though it's a misdemeanor and even though it's people that don't pose a threat, etc. But they can do that. From the immigration front, it's also lawful. These people cross the border without authorization. So they either have an asylum claim and if they don't, then they need to, they're, they're in removal proceedings and they're going to face an immigration judge to see if they are removed or, or in some cases even expedited removed. They can be deported in less than two weeks. But from the human rights perspective, it was fundamentally wrong at a visceral level that you could just take someone's child and not be accountable to anybody. So that's where the idea to go to the International Human Rights Forum came from. And uh, frankly, I thought we were going to have a ruling more quickly, but it took about two months to get a ruling. We got a ruling, a, a favorable ruling, on behalf of the five families that we interviewed on that first day, ordering their immediate reunification and that they'd be provided with services, psychological services. Now, that hasn't happened in practice, but we got that ruling. So that was... the reason behind going to the international forum because that's where I thought the crux of this atrocity was mm -hmm. at the human rights level mm -hmm. regardless of what the criminal law says or what the immigration law says in this particular instance at a human rights level at a very basic le level because human rights law is supposed to be the floor right mm -hmm. the floor yeah. you're not supposed to go below Right. You can do anything above it, but you're not supposed to go that low. And this is what this policy did. It went below that floor. Mm -hmm. So it's really interesting. I think it's really remarkable that kind of facing the criminal law says it's okay. The immig immigration law says it's okay, but you just know that it's wrong. What can you say to like young lawyers about, one, the power that they have as an attorney, whether they are practicing in a law firm or not, because I know we had a number of volunteer attorneys that practice in different areas that just decided that they wanted to help with this, um, but also about 
thinking outside of the box and um, being creative in your approach. If you just know something is wrong, um, you kind of have the power of that law degree to do something. Like, what what can you talk to us about with that? When this story started hitting the news, we started to get a lot of people contacting us, offering to help. Lawyers, non-lawyers, non-profit organizations, law firms, how can we help? How can we help? Meanwhile, we were gathering this information about the separations, and we realized that all these people are going to need immigration lawyers. Whether it is to pursue an asylum claim or to defend the deportation and try to be reunited before they're deported, they need immigration lawyers. We're not immigration lawyers. We don't typically do this. We're civil rights, human rights lawyers. So when lawyers started reaching out to us asking how they could help, we said, oh, how many immigration cases can you take? (laughs) And uh, we started with the help of our outreach coordinator. We started assigning, you know, like, all right, how many lawyers can you send from Houston down to the valley? And they would send a group of of 10. Like, all right, well, here's 20 clients who are detained in Port Isabel. Can you go visit them? And we started doing that, and over a hundred of our clients now have law firms representing them. And to me, that's remarkable mm-hmm. because the force that a law firm brings is is amazing. Because it's not just the one lawyer who maybe you know change, if that lawyer changes firms, that firm's name is still behind that client. Mm-hmm. And now those clients are all over the country because they have been released, and many of them reunited, and they're living all over the country, and they have that law firm representing them. So I think that's a, an amazing thing that we were able to to do this summer. And we couldn't have done that without the help of many other lawyers. I think it's also important. One, another takeaway for me from this is how important it was to translate the legal violations into a compelling story that you can share with the public. And that's a crucial role that we lawyers can play. We can translate, so to speak... Um, the legal issue, the zero tolerance, the illegal entry, the misdemeanor, all of those things. When you explain that in the context of a mother escaping violence in Guatemala and being separated from her six-year-old with cerebral palsy, that is powerful. And that is what real advocacy, in my view, is all about. Being able to tell a wider world why this act that the government is taking is an injustice. And I think that's something that all of us lawyers should remember that, you know, beyond the pleadings and beyond the legal arguments, it's human lives that are at stake. And that's why we do what we do to try to give those human lives some dignity and justice and respect. Yeah, for sure. I think it's a privilege um, to be able to be in the position to help um, kind of, you know, people who might not have representation, what they feel, the pride they feel when they have legal backing, um, I think is really, really important. Um, Talk to us about what's happening now. So we know, um, you know, there was zero tolerance policy and then it was sort of rescinded, but I think some of that is a little bit murky. So just maybe shed some light on the state of things currently. Zero tolerance was not rescinded. It's still very much the policy. So everyone who crosses the border illegally is charged with a crime. The change was first the executive order that said families are going to be kept together through their immigration proceedings. Now, what that has meant in practice is that parents, so fathers and mothers, 
are not being separated for the most part, and I'll come back to that, are not being separated from their children. But nephews, nieces, cousins, siblings, grandchildren are being separated every single day. We go to court every day to interview anyone who was separated from an underage relative. And every day there's an, in McAllen alone, five, four, six, seven, it depends on the day. Some days there are none, but most days there's at least a handful. And the sad thing is that in many of those cases, that adult, that uncle, is the only adult caretaker of the child. Just two weeks ago, I interviewed an uncle who was separated from his teenage nephew. Well, the, the boy's father was never in the picture. His mom was a single mom. She died in 2011, and he had been raising that boy ever since. They crossed the border, they were arrested by Border Patrol, and the government takes the position that that uncle is not the legal guardian. So technically, that boy is an unaccompanied minor. And they're separated, and there's no telling if and when they're going to be reunited. Because the government, like I said, takes that position. So that's still happening. So families are still being torn apart. If you have an 18-year-old brother traveling with his 15-year-old sister, they're separated. And that happens every day. Moreover, we still see every now and then a parent-child separation. That is not supposed to happen, but it's happened in two contexts. First, when the government, for whatever reason, or the agent really, that agent has a hunch or some really unfounded suspicion that that's not really the father. We had a father from Guatemala traveling with his two-year-old daughter. And the agent who arrested them simply did not believe him that that was his daughter. That's not your daughter. You're trafficking her. That's not your daughter. He had a copy of the birth certificate showing his name as the father. Well, that's a fraudulent document. They didn't believe him. and he, Now, he was indigenous from Guatemala and didn't speak a lot of Spanish. So there was a language problem as well. They did not provide him an interpreter in his native language. And they separated them. And luckily, we were in, there in court to catch that separation. And we were able to bring them together. It took us almost a month. And DNA testing and a lot of advocacy and back and forth to finally get them back together. But had we not been there, who knows if that little girl would have become an orphan. We have, we're still also seeing separations when the parents have some criminal history. If they had lived in the U.S. before and they had, you know, a DUI or a public disturbance or any sort of criminal issue from 10 years ago in some cases, that means they're flagged and then the government takes the position that that parent is not fit to be reunited with the child, so they are also separated. And those cases are hard because we need to then talk to government agents to see if like, the crime is really a crime that puts the child in danger and go through that process. But to me, the critical piece is that even in those cases, there has not been a determination by, by an agency specialized in child welfare that that parent poses a risk to the child. Here in the U.S., you know, you wouldn't have a child taken away from you because uh, you have a DUI conviction. Now, I'm not saying anyone should drink and drive, <laughs> right. but... But if you do, you're convicted, and whatever the sentence is, you don't lose your child as a result. Many of these parents, if they have such a conviction from 10, 15 years ago, that becomes a really hard obstacle for them getting their child back. Yeah, that's pretty incredible. I, it seems like there's um, 
all these different parts, criminal, immigration, family law, um, all kind of merged um, into one that a lot of different issues that y'all are dealing with all in kind of one situation. Um, as you think about the work that TCRP will continue to do, um, what does that look like um, for TCRP as we move forward and continue to try to reunite these families? As long as zero tolerance is in place, we're going to continue going to court because every day someone could be separated from their child, uh, from their nephew, whatever it is. We're there to document that separation. And in the cases in which we need to do advocacy, we do it. Whether that means filing something in court or liaising with the CBP and ICE agents to try to get that family back together. That's one part of it. Another part, now we're hearing rumors of, of this new executive action regarding asylum, uh, purporting to limit asylum and, and rendering anyone who crosses the border illegally not eligible for asylum. That is a substantive change in, to the law, and only Congress can make such a change. Uh, last time I checked in our Constitution, <laughs> it was the role of Congress to make laws. So I think that's likely to be challenged in court. It is also inconsistent with the Refugee Convention. It's an international treaty that the U.S. not only ratified, but drafted after World War II. And in Article 31, that treaty provides that the authorization or not of a person in a country should be no bar whatsoever to them applying for asylum in that country. So this new proclamation and, and proposed rule changes are contrary to the international commitments that this country, like I said, drafted and, and <laughs> right. got a lot of other countries around the world to agree on. So I think those are going to be challenged in court. And, you know, we, we're in South Texas, so we will continue to interview these asylum seekers and, and try to defend them as best we can. Awesome. Well, thank you, first of all, um, for the work that you do. Um, day in, day out, it's not easy work, but it's meaningful work. It matters um, that people are represented and that they have you there um, present. Um, also, thank you for being on the podcast and giving us perspectives um, on what's happening. Is there anything else that you would like to say to you know young attorneys who are starting out in their career? I hope that the young attorneys listening will take this as an inspiration to keep doing the work. Rem try to remember maybe not every day, but at least once a week, <laughs> why you went to law school. Most of us, I think, thought that we could use the law as a tool to advance our beliefs and what we consider to be justice. So try to remember that often and try to make that a reality in your work. Whether you are at a nonprofit organization or whether you are a transactional corporate lawyer, you can always find ways to use your skills and your training as a lawyer to try to seek more justice for more people. So do that as much as you can. <laughs> I like that. More justice for more people. And certainly serving is what Texas Young Lawyers Association is all about. Um, so thank you listeners for listening to the Young Gunners from the Texas Young Lawyers Association. If you like our show and want to know more, check us out. Young Gunners, wherever podcasts are found. Um, you can go to our website, uh, tyla.org and also check out all the great projects and community service um, commitments that we have made on that website. Until next time.